0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Really nice to be back with the group. I was uh, traveling on the East Coast, teaching at a few places, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, and a beautiful retreat center in North Carolina named uh, Southern Dharma, and giving a few public talks. I'll be back now in town for a while. I have one more retreat this summer. I'm teaching out of town at the end of June at Spirit Rock in California. But yeah, just really good to be here in community. And I'm sure because of so many events these last weeks, local and national, international, there's this great tenderizing happening, at least for me. And I'm guessing I'm not alone and it reminded me of this teaching that I sometimes mention but I thought I'd go into it in a little bit more depth and I pasted the Sunday resources in the chat for folks and it has the link for this sutta, sutta means a discourse from the Buddhist tradition and it's related to the word for, you know, what a surgeon uses to sew up a wound, the sutra. And uh, like a thread. And so the suttas, the discourses of Buddhas, it's a thread, right? You can think of it as a long-time conversation the Buddha was having with all of his students for 45 years, this thread of teachings. No one teaching is going to kind of knock our socks off and show us the way. But, you know, as students, and we're really students of the way it is, we're not students of the Buddha even <clears throat> we really more accurately students of the way it is, of Dhamma, the way it is. And so here's one thread of that, you know, helpful turning the mind in a dif- different direction. And it involves a conversation between the Buddha and uh, King Pasanati, who was a famous character at the time of the Buddha, in charge of one of the fiefdoms in northern India at the time. And they had kind of become friends, and they were approximately the same age. And I believe this conversation happened when they were both older folks, like in their 70s or early 80s. And uh, King Pasanadi showed up to talk to the Buddha, and uh, the Buddha asked, you know, what have you been up to, (laughs) something like that. And it was just great, you know, the king talking to his teacher, right? He's he's very transparent and he says to him, I was engaged in the sort of royal affairs typical of a head-anointed noble warrior king, intoxicated with the intoxication of sovereignty, obsessed by greed for sensuality, who have attained stable control of their country, and who rule having conquered a great sphere of territory on earth. (laughs) So he's kind of being straightforward and blunt, like, yeah, I'm thinking about all the sense delights I can, because of my power and my privilege that I can take advantage of. And uh, I'm intoxicated with, you know, my privilege, basically, he's saying. And so just imagine like a wise Friend, how would that wise friend respond to the king being transparent in that way? He gives him this really powerful simile. What do you think, great king? Suppose a person, trustworthy, reliable, were to come to you from the east and on arrival would say, If it pleases you, your majesty, you should know that I come from the east. There I saw a great mountain range as high as the clouds, coming this way crushing all living beings in its path do whatever you think should be done and then it goes on the the simile the buddha is giving him then involves a person coming from the west a person coming from the north a person coming from the south and they all say the same thing hey just thought you should know there's this great mountain range that happens to be marching your way right so you get the image huge mountain ranges marching toward the capital of the kingdom, crushing everything in the way. And then the Buddha says, um, If your majesty, such a great peril should arise, such terrible destruction of human life, the human state, being so hard to obtain, what should be done? So this is the question the Buddha poses to the king. You know, you're in trouble. Mountains are marching towards you in all directions, kind of feels this way a little bit, I mean certainly, depending on what you pay attention to, it's certainly not all bad, but there are a lot there's a lot in motion these days that can be scary, internal, external, local, national, international, you know, and it can feel like, oh boy, we're screwed one way or another, right, So he asks the king, what should you do if this if this is actually the case for us humans, that there's a lot of danger in all directions, what should be done? And the king, being a wise student of the Buddha, says, what else should be done but our Dharma practice, right? cultivating the good, abandoning what is not so helpful, right? cultivating a wise heart, skillful heart, skillful action, the Buddha was pleased with that, and then he, he goes on and he says, I inform you, great king, I announce to you, aging and death are rolling in on you. Right. So this is, the king's already pretty old. And, uh, and remember this aging and death is just a metaphor for all of the uncertainty, all of the vulnerability, all of the exposure that comes with human life. So it isn't just aging and death. But it's it's just that basic truth that anything can happen anytime. Even if we you know have that privileged life of living in a relatively orderly place, things change. And we have evidence that things change, right? This is not shouldn't be surprising to us. It's nice when things are relatively stable, but we don't want to be intoxicated by the relative comforts the relative orderliness, like even in terms of our own body, we don't want to get intoxicated by the fact that we've been healthy for a while. I I have a toothache now and I haven't had a cavity in decades. I don't know how long it's been, but a long, long time. And I started to think, you know, in this sort of arrogant way, well, guess I'm done with tooth, tooth decay. <laughs> it's probably an old, you know, it's just like part of my arrogance. Well, it's not really a cavity. It's probably an old Filling that needs to be replaced or something like that right because i have this idea that you know because i've been involved not not vulnerable to tooth problems that i you know it's like i passed i rounded that corner and i've whatever i tell you until you got a problem and it's true with everything relationships are stable until they're not you know health is stable until it's not Local communities are stable until they're not. And we don't understand all that's in motion. So any kind of pretending, oh, it's going to always be this way, is just what it is. It's delusion. It's imagining, thinking we know more than we know. Because what we should know is that anything can happen anytime. Because there are so many causes and conditions in play, many that we can't be sensitive to that we're not aware of. Even within our own mind, there's a lot of our own personal conditioning that we're not aware of until somebody pokes and prods and then we notice some kind of reaction. We go, oh, I'm capable of that kind of reaction. I didn't think I was, but there it is. Right? So the Buddha sums it up, you know, as it often is. I don't know if this actually happened. Um... But the Buddha points out, you know, that all these things you're depending on, like your elephants, and at that time, elephants were like the top of the military equipment, you know, these battling elephants. You know, No matter your elephants that you have, the cavalry that you have, the wise advisors that you have, the wealth that you've stored away, none of that is going to be a refuge for you. And then he ends with this these verses like massive boulders mountains pressing against the sky moving in from all sides crushing the four directions so aging and death all that's unknown comes rolling over living beings noble warriors brahmins merchants workers outcasts they spare nothing they trample everything Here, elephant troops can hold no ground, nor can chariots or infantry, nor can a battle of wits or wealth win out. So a wise person, seeing their own good, steadfast, secures confidence in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Buddha Dhamma Sangha is our Buddhist code for being awake, that's what Buddha means, being awake to Dhamma, the way it is, and our activity, our engagement flows from that intimacy of Buddha being intimate with Dhamma. So what we would call compassionate action. That's what Sangha really means. Compassionate action arising out of that wisdom of Buddha being intimate with Dhamma. So a wise person seeing their own good steadfast secures confidence in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. One who practices the Dhamma in thought, word, and deed receives praise now and later, right? is honored because we've done what humans can do. We're basically aligning. We're not putting it off, thinking, well, I'll take advantage of my nice conditions. When conditions are nice, we practice. When conditions are terrible, we practice. And when conditions are so-so, we practice. And the practice is as simple as just this value of being open. And being open to the way it is, is really the same as being vulnerable and brokenhearted. Some of you know this art form. I don't know, maybe it started in Japan, but it's in, a, in a way, it's best known in that version. You know, where you take something like pottery, and when it breaks, Then you put it back together and, you know, the seam that you have to use to glue it back together ends up adding to the beauty. And it's a really powerful, useful metaphor for us in life because, you know, I don't know anybody who goes, lives unscathed by pain, by disappointment, by betrayal, by oppression, injustice, right? We're all bumping up, getting pushed around by these worldly winds. You know, in Buddhism, we talk about them as the eight worldly winds of gain and loss, praise and blame, fame, disrepute, and pleasure and pain. And these are just the ordinary, unavoidable, buffeting winds of life. And it's not the same for each of us, of course. Some of us have a much rougher go at it. Others have a more easy go of it. But we're all being pushed around by ups and downs of life, the 10,000 sorrows, the 10,000 joys. And the question is, what do we do with this tumble, this exposure, this vulnerability? Is there something actual? I mean, that's not just romantic, but is there something beautiful that can come out of it? 'Cause otherwise if we if we don't intuit that then we misunderstand the spiritual life as escaping the vulnerability. Like I gotta get to a place, you know, we can visualize a heaven this way, right? Heaven is the place where nothing bad happens. I gotta get myself there. And then it's gonna be easy going forever, for eternity. And you know, how many different expressions through human history? have there been, with this being the ultimate conception of spiritual life, get me to that place where nothing bad happens. Then I'll be happy, you know, and I'll be those delightful smoothies and tropical breezes and nice sounds and good friends who treat me the way I want to be treated and, you know, whatever you might imagine in a place like that. But it's nicer, you more useful, more practical to be curious about a freedom, an enlivening, liberating, opening way of being that doesn't require tropical breezes, wonderful smoothies made from fresh mangoes or whatever you imagine, right? Like maybe... Maybe the freedom doesn't need conditions, the wildness where anything can happen anytime. Doesn't need all that to go away. See, it becomes so much more real and practical, that kind of relationship with spiritual life. Like, I don't need a different life. I don't need a different world. I don't need a different personality. I don't need a different body to cultivate the freedom that my spiritual elders are pointing to, right? It's here and now with these imperfect conditions of my life, these imperfect circumstances. And so that's why that art form of Kintsuji, you know, where they, they often will use either gold or something that looks like gold as a way to make the seam when they're putting the different um, art for, uh, pieces of the pottery together. Oh, thanks, Leah, for putting that inf- information in. Yeah, and so, as a way of conceiving, holding, understanding our spiritual practice, it's it's like, not, it's not about avoiding getting pushed around by life. Because then, you know, what we'll do is we'll end up thinking, well, I, I can't be in relationship with another human being because it's way too messy, you know, and, and I can't have nice stuff because it's messy, I just get attached and You know, I can't care about the suffering of other people because it gets so messy. It's so confusing how we take care of each other. And we just kind of end up being packed in styrofoam, you know, thinking that somehow being numb and being disconnected is somehow going to lead to happiness. And it just leads to being numb and disconnected and alienated. And that ain't the way, of course nor is the way thinking we're finally going to fix everything you know so we are engaged but we somehow postpone think that well i can't be liberated yet i can't be free freely loving now because things are still imperfect so we think well i'll suffer now but later i'll be free but how about our participation in this imperfect world being the ground being the place that liberation and love and wisdom is expressed. Maybe we need the complexity of this imperfect, this imperfect world, this complex world where anything can happen. And that, see that that makes a lot of sense when we just intuit that. Yeah, that would be impressive to see somebody fully alive, fully present, fully engaged, and expressing that. Freedom to love and to care and to hold it all, to sense and feel it all and respond from that place. Not expecting to fix everything but not afraid to be engaged, to be showing up, to do the, to be doing what can be done. So for me, this is a very impressive way to conceive of our path and it really helps us integrate compassion in with the teachings on wisdom, not to see them as like different paths or even different skillful means. You know, wisdom needs the exposure that compassion creates. And compassion needs that immunity that we imagine wisdom provides, right? Because we think of wisdom... Sort of providing this equanimity. And I think that's appropriate to have a word that points to this sense, this intuitive experience we've had in moments of being there in life, but not feeling crushed by it, oppressed by it. Right? So that, let's call that wisdom. Wisdom knows how to that knows that or intuits that experience of freedom even in the midst, that um, being unburdened no matter the conditions, unconditioned freedom, right? So that, that's the wisdom piece. And that, that sense of freedom gives to compassion, compassionate action, a lot of fearlessness a lot of courageousness in terms of leaning in not running away but saying instead to ourselves oh it's like this now this is what I'm feeling this is what I'm sensing this is the you know how I'm sensing this interaction with this person oh this is how it is it's messy it's ambiguous I don't know what to say or what to do but yeah yet I feel responsible to be engaged, to show up, to do what can be done, to listen, to feel into, right? So wisdom gives courage to compassion and compassion gives ground to wisdom. Like We can sense like intellectually, superficially, that possibility of equanimity, of non-reactivity. But what does that look like when the heart's provoked because of the messiness of life? the messiness of the moment, right? So compassion with its capacity to lean in and to show up and to care and to want to respond, to feel touched by everything, sensitive to all that's moving and to feel that sense of wanting to respond, then it's like it's a great proving ground, testing ground for the equanimity the spaciousness, the immunity of wisdom, and so I really feel like this is the the dynamic of practice, of spiritual practice. You know, we might, you know, a lot of people misunderstand the uh, the emphasis of finding a quiet place to sit every day, or finding a week every year to go on a Buddhist retreat. You know, we have, Ground now has its own retreat centers besides all the other places around the country where people who have a Buddhist meditation practice go away. you know, So it's clearly a big deal, setting aside some quiet time, a quiet place to do your daily practice, and setting aside some days to do retreat practice. It's clearly part of Buddhist culture, no doubt about it. But people can misunderstand that and think wrongly think it's the end point. You know, like if only I could just live at a Buddhist retreat center or if only I could just sit still with only nice sounds, like the sounds of birds or the sound of wind through the leaves of a tree, then, you know, no, it's just like we we use that daily sitting time, we use the retreat time to build confidence in this coming together of wisdom and compassion. Right, Because when the conditions are more simple, then we can uh, experiment with this, like, what is it that is balanced and how to be balanced, how to be free and engaged? Well, it's easier to learn when the sensations in the body are relatively comfortable and the sounds and sights around me are relatively neutral or pleasant like at a nice meditation center or corner of your bedroom where you sit or wherever it might be and just to practice that total exposure that complete undefended real opening oh it's like this and believe me you know if you've done this practice You don't need to be in the middle of downtown or in the middle of some wild situation to realize how challenging it is to be wide open. Just Because when we feel into the body, we're feeling all the reverberations of what's been laid down on this body all these years. Every moment of fear, every moment of greed, Every moment of confusion lays down some energetic pattern in the body. So even when we're in a relatively pleasant, quiet place, and we sit and we feel into the moment, we're feeling all the past. That's where the past lives. It's reverberating in the heart, mind, and body right now. All the memories, all the unresolved pain, the trauma, it's right here. So we have to learn how to be with this body, this sensitive heart, first and foremost in a relatively simple environment before we take it on the road and we take it into our, we take our practice of being wide open and being sensitive and being interested and we take it on the road into all our relationships, all the work we do, you know. Being an activist, caring about racial injustice or caring about economic injustice or caring about some family problem, you know, that, that the family's trying to deal with. Someone's addicted to drugs or somebody's in a really difficult financial situation and the family's trying to help without becoming codependent or whatever, right? There's so many difficult, complex, sticky problems in life. So we have more than enough opportunities to test, but we want to build the confidence. We don't have to wait. Those difficult, sticky places are already showing up, but to put aside a little time every day where the conditions are a little bit more safe and more comfortable, to build the confidence in being wide open, Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, so that we can build confidence in Sangha, this compassionate, response this fearless engagement and and then that's just the next place for buddha to be intimate with dhamma in that fearless engaged compassionate action whether we're raising kids or cooking soup for ourselves or on the front lines of activism it's all gonna be ground for practice I came across this quote today, I don't know if people remember who John Wooden is, uh, people of my generation might, um, but he was the coach for the basketball team at UCLA for a long time, maybe starting back in the 60s and 70s, and uh, had an incredible record um, in terms of being national champions, and uh, he, so he sort of the was known at the time at least as sort of the wonderful coach just really knowing how to get the most of all the players and he had this great line do not let what you cannot do interfere with what you can do and that's really for me this uh, talks a lot about this place in our practice we call sangha remember sangha gets superficially defined as spiritual community but it's actually a, an important dynamic in our practice Right, We have these three intersecting forces, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. So Buddha means being awake, being sensitive, being wide open to Dhamma. And uh, that's just the way it is in this moment. But Sangha is really this kind of giving this life away to everything, to all of life. This showing up and expressing the freedom. You know, when we practice Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, you know, in the safety of a of a sit, you know, where we have 30 minutes or 45 minutes where no one's gonna bother us and we got our special meditation shawl that we like and, you know, all the little things that support and create a sense of safety. People in the house know to leave us alone. Even the dog knows not to come in the room and we've got our little paradise, which is still hard work, by the way. <laughs> Just try doing it regularly. You know, if you haven't developed a daily practice, you'll realize this is not so easy. And even people who do have a daily practice, a lot of their practice might be doing more of a retreating kind of meditation technique where they're really concentrating their mind on one object, which is great practice and, and develops great skill. That I would encourage to always use some of your time, meditation time, to just be wide open. You're not trying to concentrate the mind. You can even open your eyes during that last part if you're not doing it for the whole set. So maybe you put aside 10 minutes or 15 minutes at the end. Let the eyes be open. Buddha, being intimate with Dhamma. So whatever's coming and going, the heart is practicing being wide open, sensitive being moved, being touched by this sound, by that thought, by this emotion, by that sensation, by the whatever's predominant, and just practice in that situation where an appropriate response is just to be sensitive and open and to feel. Right? We're not asking the body to get up and do something during that time. But then that sit ends. And it really lends itself for whatever's next when we are going to be engaged. And that's where we get to practice Sangha. We take that intimacy, that Buddha being intimate with Dhamma on the road. One interaction, one life situation after another, set of circumstances after another. Well, what does this look like? And this is where we can bring that you know, when I mentioned Kintsuji earlier, that brokenheartedness and the beauty, what we're bringing into the world isn't this like a superpower, like I'm immune, I've got my meditation, my awareness practice, and nothing can touch me. The attitude is almost just the opposite. Everything can touch me. I'm, I'm willing to feel everything. Repulsion, including unwholesome conditions you know like you could you might trigger this kind of neurotic defensiveness in me i felt that just earlier today just you know kind of a raw defensiveness wanting to defend myself you know i'm not proud of that but i'm really happy that i don't hide that from myself as much you know so when i get triggered or whatever wisdom can see it oh okay so this is being known this is being felt because it's only when we see it and it kind of See it in all its glory and gory, that we can make amends and we can uh, undo that tendency by by recognizing that it's not helpful. We have to see the unskillful patterns for being what they are, unskillful, not helpful. That's what unwinds them. That's what it's kind of like we're starving them by seeing them clearly, and then the heart disengages. Because it understand this isn't helpful, nobody's benefiting, no need to no reason to feed this. And this is what we can do moment by moment. We can really plant these seeds by be being willing to feel and open and see what's helpful and what's not helpful. and it really changes things, and it's just a matter of having the willingness and the know-how and the capacity, right? And we do have the willingness, right? We just have to realize, yeah, I am willing to be open. And then we have to grow that willingness. Like, I I trust being open. I trust feeling what I feel. So I'm going to... It's kind of like loving, being devoted to being open. Because then when we really have that devotion to being open, to being exposed... Then we're willing to learn like what do I need to know in order to stay open, to be vulnerable, to be brokenhearted in life, and to realize that's a strength, not a weakness. Pretending to be invulnerable makes us really fragile. Knowing that my heart's been broken and will continue to break, it's really it it really gives the heart wisdom, a lot of stability. So we we need this to kind of learn like how to be open and then we need to learn how to persist in that openness. No matter, we don't believe the thought, oh, I can't be open now. It's too much. Well, instead, we have the thought, can I be open now? Is it safe enough to be open? What would it look like and feel like to allow this to feel the way it's feeling. You know, and especially these these days, you know, where there's a lot of confusion and ambiguity and, you know, with different kinds of crises and problems here and there, it can sort of spin, the mind can feel, because normally what we're using for safety is the idea that I know what should be done. But now, I think appropriately, less and less, we have this innocence and this humility, I don't know what to do. And so we don't have that imagined defense anymore. But we, I think we have something more powerful, which is a willingness to be in the ambiguity. Like something wise, sangha, this is what we mean by sangha. An appropriate response will come out of being present, being open, feeling in, allowing things to be. So you can just experiment in those places that are relatively easy to experiment with. So you have a problem in a particular relationship, but you don't really understand what to do. You really want to be arrogantly sure, but you're pretty sure you don't know. So just practice Feeling what you're feeling, whether you're with the particular person or not, you're thinking about it at another time when they're not around. But just trust that just being in that place of humility and openness and willing to feel, that maybe just in that moment when something could be said, you say something. And it really comes out of that willingness to be intimate, not out of a neurotic human being that needs to know what to do. Maybe compassion comes out of the openness, not out of an arrogant certainty that I know how to help you or I know how to help me. So it's a sort of a different ground for compassionate action in the world, this willingness to be open, this willingness to be sensitive. And I'll just end with this famous discourse, another one of the suttas that I mentioned earlier, This involves the Buddha and the Buddha's chief disciple, Sariputta, who was, you know, along with Moggallana, the two chief disciples, elders who did a lot of teachings, teaching themselves. And uh, they often would spend the rainy time of the season together because they didn't want, you know, it was hard to travel when it was raining. It was destructive to have people walking around, you know, the paths and everything. So the uh, monks and nuns would stay put for those three months or so. And then at the end, uh, then they'd separate and go their different ways, wandering around. And Sariputta said goodbye to the Buddha, and he was going to begin wandering. And shortly after that, uh, a younger monk came to the Buddha and said that Sariputta, remember, who was this highly respected teacher, this young monk accused him of hitting him and not apologizing. So the Buddha sent somebody after Sariputta to bring him back. And um, of course, all the elders in the community knew that Sariputta would never do that. So they said, they gathered everybody because they knew that when uh, Sariputta would be accused, that he'd have some wise words. Like, this will be interesting. What happens when a wise person is wrongly accused of something? So they're all kind of gathered. Sariputta shows up having already left, but then came back. And then this, uh, the Buddha says, hey, this young monk is, says that you hit him and that you left without any apology. And so what did Sariputta say? And this is really interesting. You know, he says, speaking to the Buddha, you know, sir, one in whom, in whom mindfulness directed to the body, right? somebody who, Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, being intimate with the body, this embodied experience, if, it w- if they weren't doing that, yeah, then that kind of person might do something like that, to hit somebody and not apologize. But not somebody who is intimate, Buddha knowing Dhamma. And then he gives a number of similes. Just as people throw upon the earth things clean and unclean, dung, urine, spit, pus, blood, yet for all of that the earth has no revulsion, no loathing, no disgust, Even so, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, measureless, without hostility, without ill will. Right? So, in a heart like that, no one's going to hit somebody and leave without apologizing. And then he goes, he uses a simile of water, or the simile of fire, and the simile of wind. So he uses these natural elements to describe his wide open heart. And the reason I like that, that the the openness that Sariputta is talking about, it's really the absence of ill will, the absence of self-centeredness. And he's making the point that it's just not possible for a heart that is that open to do something unskillful like that. It just doesn't happen. If it wasn't that way, sure, those sort of things do happen, but not when the heart is that. So it's an interesting way of saying like, this is how it is. And it's not kind of a prideful thing. It's just saying, this heart is open. There's really no room for ill will. It's kind of like the earth. It's kind of like space itself, the ocean itself. It doesn't react when people praise me or blame me. And and the young monk who accused them hearing this asked for forgiveness. And then the last part of this discourse is Sorry, Puta, who, you know, is second to the Buddha, so he's a very respected part of the community, he also apologizes. If there were anything I did or said that caused you to make this wrong accusation, please forgive me. That's a really beautiful little interaction. So I thought I'd leave us with that. And if you decide to stay for the small groups, you might want to have conversations about your own experience with this openness and just how it really allowed you to function in your life in all the twists and turns in skillful ways. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening.